You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi guys, Andy Hanley here, and today we are going to be talking to you about conventional program design made unconventional. Um, as you can see, I'm a master instructor with the National Academy of Sports Medicine, um, so I do have an avid passion for program design, um, specifically operating in and within that OPT model. Uh, the goal of today for me is just to showcase to you guys that while program design and planning is really important, it's also to take into consideration that sometimes it's not always going to be appropriate for our clients in any given training day. And we need to be aware of that. Uh, we need to make sure we accommodate that. And today I'm going to give you guys some really good um, solutions and strategies that's going to help you guys on your journey, be it with the program design standpoint or just being more fluid within it uh, as we move along in our journey with our clients. Um, so the agenda for today, you can see we're going to start with a brief introduction. We're going to move along and talk about what we call the conventional training process. And this basically is periodization and its significance as it really does steer the ship and make sure that we're getting our clients closer to their goals. Um, from there, then we're going to break it down. We're going to bring it in uh, auto regulation. Uh, what does that mean? What is it? What are the different strategies that we can use both objectively and subjectively that, again, is going to help give us the information and feedback we need uh, to make sure that our clients are in fact progressing along the, the timeline and their goals. We're going to touch on allostasis and fatigue management. What does this mean? We're going to look at program adjustments. So yes, we need to plan, but how far in advance should we be planning and why? And then finally, we're going to look at some daily adjustments, what we call sessionly adjustments, where even though we might have something pre-scripted, we're going to take it off script for many different reasons and then just different strategies that we can use to ensure that uh, the current training of that day is in line with our client's current needs and abilities, irrespective of what we might actually have intended at the start. So as we get rolling here, we're gonna see optimal loading is essentially a daily conundrum between biology and logistics. So the reality is guys, adaptation lives in a world of uncertainty. It's not universal or, predict or predictable. The textbook might say if we put our client on a four, five, six week program and we follow these kind of generic sets, reps and volume schemes, uh, we can expect to see outcome A. The reality is different people are going to respond at different rates and at different levels. And that's something as coaches that we need to be aware of, that there are individual variants at play. Uh, so when we talk about adaptation living in a world of uncertainty, that essentially means while we have an idea where we're taking them, we don't really know where we're going as such. And I mean that in the, in, in the strictest of senses. I mean, yes, if we're trying to develop general strength, power, speed, maximum strength, we know what acute variables we need to manipulate to move the needle in the right direction. But as I said, guys are going to progress at different rates. Guys are going to have to contain with different elements outside of the gym that might not allow them to adapt as well as they should to the stimulus. And this is something that we need to be aware of. Um, and really, as coaches, are we aware of this and how are we actually accounting for the unpredictable nature of life and then just accounting for the human element in general? Um, so as we can see, auto-regulation adjustments in programming are basically every bit as necessary as system updates are for our smartphone devices. So you take Apple, they release a product, they're not happy with it. In time, they're going to notice bugs, they're going to notice it's slowing down, they're going to get feedback from clients and businesses. And with all this information, they make adjustments on the flight and we automatically get these updates to our smartphones. Our programming needs to be the same. We're gonna sit there with the best of intent, six, eight, 12 weeks in advance. We're gonna plan the program as best as we can. But at that moment in time, it's basically our best guess 
as to what we think our clients are going to need four, five, six, seven, eight weeks down the line. Order regulation basically allows us to accommodate any sort of adjustments that might need to take place uh, in light of the current state of readiness of our clients. So the recipe for success, for success rather, requires a fluid adaptive process involving both progressive and reactive manipulation of even pre-planned training stimuli. So essentially that means in order for us to be successful with our clients, we need to be planned. There's that progressive idea. We need to be reactive and fluid, meaning even though we're down for three sets of 10 today, we might need to back it off. Even though we're down to lift at 82.5% of someone's one rep max today, we might need to back it off, okay? Even in light of the fact that this is already pre-planned and we know this is where they should be at. As coaches, we've just got to be able to accommodate this. So why is this important? One of our most salient responsibilities as a coach or a trainer is basically the idea of developing this periodized plan with the ultimate goal of maximizing the adaptive training response, okay? Our role is to provide stress, but we need to make sure that we're providing enough stress just to cause a certain level of disruption that will still allow our client to, or to gain positively from it. And it's this idea of creating an environment of good stress versus duress or distress. And this is something that we really do need to be cognizant of as we move through the process, okay? You read the textbooks, we take our certifications, we, out, we come out of college, we all understand that when we have a plan in place, this is the most superior approach from a biological sense that we can utilize. And it's gonna reap us the highest training effect because we, we have evidence. We have evidence in the last 20, 30, 50, 60 years, hundreds of years, basically saying that when we get guys on a plan, this is what we can expect to see. But the reality is, when, we're, when we stay tunnel vision with that mindset that this is the way we have to move forward, there's an opportunity cost there, okay? And the art of coaches is in what we do, knowing who we're um, exposing um, these physical loads with, are they ready to handle the stress, and then how we go about doing it. So if, we're taking, if we take the approach of, hey, we've got our program, we've built the program, our client needs to fit and live and exist inside of this, we're missing something there, and that is exactly the opportunity cost. It needs to almost be like a business plan. It's a live working document that as we're moving through the process, we are willing to make adjustments. And as you can see there, the, the common cliche, you know, the best session is one that we can recover from. It's also a fact. Every time we have a client go through a session, we're applying stress to their body. Stress accumulates over time. And we've got to make sure that even though with the accumulation of this stress, we're still allowing and planning for the necessary recovery because in that window, that's where adaptation exists. Uh, and so if we're not accounting for that, again, we're dropping the ball. It's important to understand it conceptually, but apply it fluidly, or fluidly rather. So yes, from a, from a conceptual standpoint, we need to understand how to plan. We, we need to understand that clients need to work progressively through phases because there is this potentiation cascade that exists that when we layer certain movement and strength qualities on top of each other, we can expect a certain outcome. Um, but with that said, we need to live within that fluidly. Just because week four dictates we're moving here doesn't mean our client is ready or capable at that point, okay? Little consideration for the individual's current state of readiness to train or tolerance to manage stress. Big issues we see in the industry now, okay? Little consideration given to current readiness. How are we monitoring our client's readiness? What dictates or suggests that these guys are ready to lift you know, at north of 85, 90% of the one rep max today. How do we know if they've slept well? How do we know if they've eaten well? And these are questions that we need to be asking uh, proactively to ensure that when we do get into the meat and bones of the session, that our clients are ready and prepared to tolerate the stress that we're inevitably gonna be putting on their system. Uh, because the reality is if we put too much stress on their systems, this can increase different physiological as well as emotional effects um, that personally I've seen, you know, all over my years. So moving on, what does this conventional training process look like? As we said, it's basically this idea of periodization, okay? And the goal is to solicit purposeful and timely physiological adaptations that directly enhance the performance or quality of life of the individual. So in a nutshell, when we plan in advance, and we do a good job of progressing our guys through their program, we can expect to see heightened physical capabilities and just basically improved outputs, okay? 
So this periodization, as it says there on your screens, is basically the long-term structure and division of programming into specific phases targeting specific outcomes. And we know this, case in point, the OPT model does a great job of this. It helps us, it helps us go from building that necessary stabilization to developing the strength endurance, which then prepares us to handle greater loads through maximum strength and ultimately power. And that is why it's important to plan. We need to know where we're going. We need to have a roadmap established. Uh, but with that said, it needs, to be, it needs to be fluid, okay? So this planned adjustment and regulation of training loads in the presence, keyword, in the presence of planned recovery leads to optimal adaptative responses, okay? Generally speaking, as we move through this kind of conventional method where we preset our plan in advance, we're layering these physical qualities. Uh, development comes from um, both delayed transformation as well as training residuals. So delayed transformation is this idea of accumulated volume where we're short-term overreaching, okay? Following a good period of rest and recovery, our body is gonna supercompensate and we're gonna see greater than normal gains. Okay, that there is uh, delayed transformation. And then the idea of training residuals is basically our body's ability to retain these changes or mode abilities over time. But after the cessation of certain levels of training, they tend to uh, decline at different rates. And this is something that we need to accommodate for as well when we start talking about long-term planning, okay? So when we look at the conventional training process, and I'm not here to talk down on it, I'm not here to question it, I'm just here to kind of open your minds to the idea that maybe there's a slightly better way. Uh, because while it is considered the best, because it is, it's, you know, it's, it's proven, um, a lot of top coaches have had great success with the world's top athletes. A lot of great trainers have had great success with their clients. So while it is considered the best, sometimes it might almost be a little inflexible towards individual differences and individual rates of improvement. Okay, we put two people on the exact same program. We cannot expect the two of them to adapt in a linear fashion because this, that's not how we're hardwired. Um, sometimes the conventional method doesn't really account for day-to-day -day motivation. Hey, my sheet says we're doing this today, even though our client's coming in and they've had a bad night's sleep, they've had a rough day at work, and mentally they're just not engaged. And that then ultimately can affect their readiness to train. So again, as coaches and trainers, this is just something that we need to be prepared for um, throughout the process. All right, so let's look at autoregulation. What does this mean? It's quite simply an adaptive management system which regulates individual differences in current capacities and allows these differences to be self-governed and adjusted for. All right, key words there, it regulates individual differences. And that's what I like. So when we apply auto-regulatory auto uh, strategies, it just makes sure that the stress and the dose that we're putting on our clients in that day is unique and specific to them, okay? As you can see there, it's highlighted. This is a feedback-driven process. So the feedback can be objective or it can be subjective where we get them involved and the client can almost have a certain level of ownership uh, with the process, okay? Because it is important that the application of stress is in line with their current abilities on that day. And as coaches, this really does allow us just to manage fatigue. Uh, now it's important to manage fatigue because the reality is while we know we're trying to layer this fatigue, it's seldom that we as coaches have any real direct uh, control or even have a high degree of control over what our client's day or week looks like. We really don't know what level they're going to come into us. So it's important to ensure that we're just accounting for this and we're fluid and adaptive within it. Um, because essentially, I almost see myself as a fatigue manager. Yes, we're here to build, build, build. We're trying to increase performance. We're trying to increase outputs and capabilities. But we only get all that nice stuff if we do a good job on the day-to-day -day basis when we're in the trenches of managing fatigue, because if our clients cannot recover from our training, they're not going to be in the best position possible to benefit from the plethora of, of results. Um, so you can see there, heuristic. What is this? Heuristic is basically any approach to problem solving that employs a practical method. It's not guaranteed to be optimal or precise, but instead it is sufficient for reaching an immediate goal to the best of our capabilities. And for me, that's exactly what this is. When we use auto-regulation within our training, while it might not be optimal, it is practical, and it's allowing us to do the best we can by our clients on any given day. And when we win all these little bad battles, you know, every session is a little battle, right? When we win these battles over the long term, and we're not taking too much carnage on the way, 
the war will be won in the long term, meaning when we do get closer to narrowing on that long term goal, our clients are going to be in a much better position to attain that safely and efficiently and effectively. Um, so, yes, we know what we want to get done. Some days we need to pull the reins. We've got to be willing to back off and let the athlete's body or even them intuitive let us know, hey, today I'm just not feeling it. And as coaches, we need to be okay with that. And the issue I see across the industry nowadays is some coaches, it's their way. You know, you're mentally weak. You're in your head. Pull through, uh, you know. And these are all good and well in certain settings. And sometimes athletes and clients need to get riled up. And they need someone just to push them forward to break through to break through certain zones or thresholds. Um, but it is a double-edged sword. Okay, we need to listen and we need to be aware of what's going on. All right. So you can see when we're training here, it's this constant battle between managing fitness, freshness, and fatigue. So this slide here, and you look at that top right corner, this is basically uh, kind of a derivative from Zartorsky's uh, fitness fatigue model. So you can see on the top line there, we have, struggling to see my screen. On the top line there, you can see we have fitness. On the bottom, we have fatigue. And you'll notice once that fatigue curve starts coming up and our clients are starting to recover, only then does the, does the performance start to increase. And for me, this performance is basically this idea of freshness. So if fitness is the accumulation of training volume, fatigue is the temporary reduction or limitation in one's abilities as a result of this accumulation. Freshness then is that perfect intersection where now we've got upregulated systems, we've got increased software, and we've got an improved potential to perform. And that's constantly what we're trying to battle with. So for me, where I work with a lot of athletes, there are times where it's all about volume. We're trying to build fitness. We're trying to get that work capacity up. And we allow for a certain level of fatigue because of, as we mentioned earlier, when we have key dates that we're working for, now when I choose to back off and we deload, and we allow that recovery, there's going to be this big super compensation effect. And our clients or my athletes rather are going to go into competition fresh, ready to perform. Okay. Now it's different with the, with the day-to-day -day warriors in our general population where they might not have definitive days or, or key dates in mind, but they're training for five, six, seven, eight months. So how are we as coaches accounting for this accumulation of stress and through fitness, the inevitable fatigue that it's going to bring and then keeping them, keeping them in a certain level of freshness. And that's something that we need to plan for in advance because I can guarantee you a father that's going to you know, work at, at, at a bank for eight, seven or eight hours, uh, a school teacher that's standing in front of kids for seven or eight hours, these guys don't want to be physically drained uh, or, or mentally drained rather, and they definitely don't want to be physically sore all the time. So when we talk about our training, we need to make sure that, yes, we're moving in towards their goals, but we've got to make sure that it's, it's not detrimental to their day-to-day -day activities. If I send an athlete out on the pitch and he's under-trained or over-trained, he's at increased risk of injury. In the day-to-day -day world, we're just at an increased risk of a lack of performance. And that doesn't benefit our clients either. So this is just a really good um, image to kind of help you guys associate in your mind in terms of, okay, when we're training, we are trying to improve fitness. Fatigue is an inevitable side, side, um, side effect of that. And we plan for it. With the ultimate goal that we just have waves where performance is just staying in this nice neutral position, unless we do have clients that want to train for, say, a mud run, for example. And we know we're now eight, ten weeks out. The first six, seven weeks, we can put the hammer down. But then we've got to start factoring in that cumulative fatigue and making the necessary adjustments to ensure that on race day, our guys are peaked and primed. Okay? All right, so moving on. Allostasis and fatigue management. All right, so allostasis is quite simply the positive adaptation in response to stress. This is what we're trying to get out of our training. We are, are trying to elicit positive adaptations. Uh, stress is good. It has a negative a connotation out there, but stress is basically anything that's impacting our system. Okay, stress could be a lack of sleep. But the purpose of today's talk, stress is uh, how our body can tolerate training loads. Stress could be bad nutrition, okay? So all of these factors need to live and coexist in good unison to ensure that our client is getting the ultimate training effect. Um, but for the purpose of today's talk, we're going to keep it purely to uh, training loads, okay? So when we look at allostatic load, this then is the wear and tear that our clients have to endure in response to the frequency 
and or magnitude of loading. Okay, the frequency, if we've got a client and they feel the need to train five, six, seven days a week with very little planned rest and recovery, it's gonna burn them out at some point. The magnitude of loading, if we only see our clients two days a week and we're like, oh, I've only got Scotty here twice a week, I've gotta put the hammer down because we've gotta make up for the days he can't make it. That magnitude of the session can do so much damage to him acutely that it's gonna take him three or four days to recover. And any, posit any possible positive training effects uh, you know, could, could be completely mitigated there. So if you look at the top right corner there, we'll see these six slices of bread. And it's just a nice analogy I use uh, when, I'm start when I talk to my clients in terms of the training process and how our body responds to it. And you always hear all the time, oh, I'm toast, I'm dead. And for me, that's that bottom right there. Oftentimes people live in this world where more is better, more is better, more is better. I gotta go harder, I gotta push harder. And the reality is they just can't tolerate it. And in the long run, they're gonna get burned out. Okay, and that doesn't serve anybody. On the flip side, in the top left corner, that's someone that is not toasting themselves and not training at all. Okay, that's not going to get them any closer to their goals. So we need to make sure, depending on what time of season it is with our athletes or what our clients' expectations are for them, that we're finding just the right heat, just the right temperature in that weight room to ensure that we're preparing these guys as optimally as they can to meet their needs. Okay, so for me, that's just a really good kind of physical representation or visual representation, rather, of what I'm trying to accomplish with my athletes. Okay, slice number three there looks pretty decent. Slice number four, for some guys, we need to take them there because we know when we back them off, they're going to be primed and ready to go. Okay. When we talk about wear and tear, what does this essentially mean for our guys and how do we get them there? And this can be basically induced by just chronic or repeated challenges on a consistent basis. So if we're consistently exposing our guys to hit training, hit, 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 they come in and we never take the time to back off and work on uh, core and restore strategies. We never take the time or pre-plan for stabilization work or strength endurance work. And all we ever have them doing is this high velocity, high exertion, high intensity training. We're leaving a lot on the table. Okay, and in time, their body will burn down, okay, and break down. Um, reason being, if we're not doing that strength endurance work, if we're not getting that stabilization work, we're not really preparing their tissues, their tendons, and their connective tissues to tolerate the frequency of that high, high, high energy that we're exposing them to. So we just need to ensure that when we're training our clients, as coaches, if we have a preferred way of training, um, or you have clients that you're seeing training out by themselves and you're trying to give them feedback, it's important to educate them that we need variability in our training. Okay, even though we have our own biases and our preferences, we need to account for that. But as coaches, on a day-to-day -day situation, if we notice that our clients, for example, uh, the speed of their squat or their speed, their last few reps are slowing down, that's a sign of fatigue. And yes, we need to get them there on occasion, but what are the outcomes we're looking for? Okay, sometimes if we've planned a maximum strength workout, we're looking for uh, you know, five sets of five reps, and for whatever reason, we're seeing that it's increasingly taxing on our clients on that given day. Maybe we'll just let them keep two reps in the tank and we'll go from five sets of three to five sets or from five sets of five to five sets of three rather. And saving them that extra volume will allow them to recover better. So please God, they'll rebound quicker and they'll come back in ready to get after it the next day. Okay, so when we start looking at this idea of fatigue management, we've got to be willing to do it on the fly. Okay, having open conversations using our eyes, assessing their exertion, their effort, the speed of their movements, the quality of their movements. And this is something that we, we, we do get better at as we develop our coaching eye, okay? So when we look at fatigue management there, big old key beside it, it is key. This is where you know, we do our best work. With insufficient recovery, fatigue will accumulate, all right? And the negative effect of the, on the body, it's gonna shut it down, uh, excuse me, then negatively affecting the body's ability to shut down rather and downregulate, leading to possible degradation of health and tissue breakdown. And that's the last thing we want to induce or invoke in our clients. Okay, so making those small on the fly decisions will have a big role in A, keeping our clients healthy. And then secondly, avoiding the potential of training related injuries. And as coaches, we know that our first rule of business is do no harm. Okay, do no harm. No one gets hurt in the weight room. Then we start worrying about performance enhancement. Um, and again, it, it all goes hand in hand with our ability just to call it as we see it on the fly and sometimes just step away from this program. And oftentimes coaches are just 
you know, I've spent an hour on this and it's, it might be the best program I've ever done. And it's a beautiful six week periodized plan. And I've got all my percentages done. That's all good and well. But again, that was your best guess at that moment in time, three, four, five weeks ago. And it doesn't account for what your athlete or client is presenting with today. So it might be unconventional just to toss that program out of the window for any given day, but understand that sometimes it's not any requirement, it's necessity for their health. Okay. And finally at the bottom there, we can see different types of fatigue, peripheral, central fatigue, and we're all familiar with muscle damage. So basically peripheral fatigue is this idea of after certain kind of strength sessions, it's the accumulation of meta, me, excuse me, metabolites. Always struggle with that word. Uh, now these can basically be cleared from the system within an hour. Okay. Central fatigue is extremely transitory and it's rarely seen beyond an hour to two hours of strength training. But again, when we're in the moment, we've got to account for these. And then when we look at muscle fatigue, acutely, this can be responsible for the, a decrease in performance in muscle soreness for, you know, 24 to 72 hours. Okay. I'm not saying it's acceptable, but it's very normal. Uh, but then conversely in, in extreme cases, Guys can suffer for weeks from this as just the general wear and tear builds. And then when they hit with too much stress in any one given day, the body just, it just breaks down and really does struggle to recover. And that diminished performance can last for weeks. Okay. So while we talk about fatigue, fatigue might be uh, short term or long term, but we just need that vision. How can we manage them in the moment? And then how can we manage that stress over four, six, eight weeks just to ensure that we're doing our job and keeping our guys, you know, as healthy and safe as possible. Because when fatigue takes over, freshness drops, and that's never in anybody's best interest. All right. So what are we striving for? Instead of wear and tear, as coaches, we should really be striving for this idea of wear and repair. Okay. How are we monitoring training load? And this is important because it really does help us minimize any negative risk effect or any negative risk factors. Um, from non-functional overreaching, okay? So when we look at training load, it's the cumulative amount of exercise our clients are doing, and this can be factored in with both duration and intensity. So from a duration standpoint, you look at runners. They've got to get out seven days a week. They've got to get their five-mile runs in. They've got to get their seven-mile runs in. That's going to do damage in time. Repetitive stress, muscle imbalances, stress fractures, okay? Then when we look at the intensity side of things, we've got some guys that when they're in the gym, if they're not going all out and leaving it all on the floor every single day, they're not getting better. The reality is sometimes they're doing themselves a disservice and they're not getting the, the bang for their buck, meaning for the amount, for their time investment, they're not getting the returns. And there's got to be some give and take in there. So when we're trying to manage this, there are different kind of, as you can see, there are different self-scoring questionnaires that we can use with our clients. The first one, TQR, Total Recovery Scale. So if you take a look at the top right of your screen here, you can see we've got an RPE, and this would happen at the end of a session. Hey, on a scale of one is to 10, and all these numbers correspond with different kind of feelings of exertion. How was that session for you? So if someone says it was an eight, all right, that was a challenging session for them. Okay, the next day they come back in, we might, we might ask them, again, it's subjective, so it's open to their own interpretation. So the more experienced your clients are, the more useful this information is gonna be. But how was your recovery? How do you feel today? Yeah, I slept really well. I've eaten well. I got out. I got my 20-minute walk. I'm ready to go. If someone comes in and said, you know what? I'm not re feeling too well today. I mean, I'm scoring a two. Had a bad night's sleep. Kids kept me awake. Neighbor's dog was barking. Whatever the case may be. In real time, we now know before we go into that session, okay, I've had someone in their previous session said they got after it, and they've just told me that they feel like they haven't recovered as well as they could. So I'm now understanding this to mean mentally they're not in that space they need to be to go where I might have wanted them to go today. And that's okay. So instead of working out, we might work in. I might incorporate a little bit more of some mobility and stability strategies, some steady state intensity work. Uh, if it's a case we're in a, a maximum strength cycle, I might still bring them there, but I'm going to reduce the volume significantly. So I'm still accounting for what they're giving me. Palms, profile of mood state. So this is basically like a five-point Likert scale where your clients are gonna self-report on descriptive words and statements regarding their feelings. Depression, uh, anger, anxiety, uh, volatility, hostility. You know, I'm angry today. I feel quite hostile. 
So if they're scoring high in these and this goes against what we're normally seeing, we know something is not right, okay? Is it a byproduct of the training? Maybe it's not, but we need to be aware of that. And we've been pushing this guy for a few weeks and now we're seeing a change in mood. All right, let's back them up and let's now use our next session or two sessions just to help downregulate their systems and get them in a better frame of mind to move forward, okay? And then the last one, which is more kind of used more commonly with our athletes is the rest cue, all right? So these types of scoring questionnaires, and look, that's not to say you can't create your own questionnaire. And a lot of good coaches I know do. Um, so if you go online, you're gonna find a lot of different options for this, but they're simple to use, quick and inexpensive. Um, it's subjective feedback, which is good. I mean, I wanna know how my athlete's feeling on any given day. I wanna know are they ready to get after it, or am I looking for hints that uh, just something is not quite there today. And generally you're gonna have pretty good compliance with this because it happens on site with you in real time. Okay. Otherwise, as coaches, then we can kind of quantifiably just start tracking load uh, or monitoring training loads is by session rating of RPE. So let's say we've come off the session and my client says, yeah, today was a, today was a nine. It was really hard. All right. Now, if this was a 30 minute session, I'm going to take their RPE score. I'm going to times it by the minutes and I'm going to get a number and that score is going to be 270. I'm just going to log that. And over the course of a week, whether we're training for 30 minutes or an hour, Depending on where that RPE is, I'm just going to log that and I'm going to start tracking. Um, because if I see our, our general, uh, our general um, score is somewhere in between 300 and 450, for example, and now for three or four days in a row, I'm noticing it all towards the top end. I know that, okay, we've had it for a sustained period of time, workouts that are quite challenging for them. We need to plan a deload. Let's step away from this program temporarily, give them a day or two just to get the systems back in check, and then we rebuild. Okay. And then obviously we have heart rate. Okay. So heart rate is a common means of assessing internal load. And it essentially gives us a window into our client's current work to gauge the intensity. Now heart rate is going to be based off individual values and it's going to correspond to different intensities that are going to elicit different outcomes. Okay. So this is a, again, another great tool. We're getting real time data on how hard our client is working and how, what their heart rate recovery is, how quickly they're coming back down, ready to go again. So if in the middle of a session, we're noticing that their heart rate recovery is taking longer than it normally would, all right, we're going to give them more rest. And it's as simple as that. So for me, that would be a prime example of just using this, an auto-regulatory strategy to better benefit your client's training experience. Okay. Um, it's simple. It's cost efficient. It's objective. And it just shows that the clients that, hey, we're willing to bend and mold around you. Uh, so, and then on the days where the clients are showing us, hey, RP, the previous session was light. They've come in, they recovered well. Heart rate's looking good and they're recovering fast. Now when we tell them, hey, we're going to put our foot on the gas and really step it up a notch here, they're going to follow us, okay? And that's why it's got to be communicative. It's got to be collaborative. Our training has to be well-considered, but it has to be flexible, okay? It has to be flexible. And your clients will value and respect you more for that. Okay. Ahead of time, heart rate variability. It's getting massive now. You see it on uh, Apple Watches. We're seeing the Whoop devices, Omega Waves, uh, BioForce. And these heart rate variability monitors are, based, are widely considered uh, to be one of the best objective metrics for demonstrating your client's readiness to perform. So essentially, the higher the variability, the more ready they are to perform. Okay, so these fluctuations are going to be caused by two competing branches that simultaneously are sending different signals. Okay, so we have uh, the parasympathetic system. So this is going to be more of a deactivating system. And then we've got the sympathetic system, which is going to be more activating. Uh, and what this essentially does is uh, the sympathetic system is going to be very responsive to stress. And oftentimes it's going to increase our heart rate. Now, when we see variability on these monitors, it's basically saying that both systems are having this little internal game of tug of war, and that's what we want. No one system is overriding the other. So let's say our heart rate is beating at 60 beats a minute, or 60 beats, yeah, 60 beats a minute rather. It doesn't mean it's they're perfectly timed, okay? A beat every second. Some beats might be going at 0.9, other ones might be going at 1.5. Uh, and the reality is that's these different systems in this little combative dance uh, that's just trying to keep us regulated and ready to go. Uh, and this is a positive thing and it's hugely beneficial. So your clients, when they get out of bed, they can check it. Hey, you know, it's telling me I'm, I'm, I'm an eight out of 10, I'm ready to go. 
you get that information ahead of time, you're ready to attack that session. Now we can take that and we can use our questionnaires. They might come in and say, my system's telling me I'm really ready to go, but based off the questionnaire we've just done, subjectively, they're not, they're not quite feeling something. Now we've got a decision to make, but with more information and more input, we're going to be in a better position to make a more informed, educated decision in terms of how hard we want to kind of push the envelope today with the clients. Um, so heart rate variability, very useful. Yes, it's a function of the heart, but it originates and is dictated by the nervous system. And this nervous system is going to give us all the information we need to know, is this client, you know, ready to move forward? So with that said, we understand conventionally, yes, we need to periodize, we need to plan, we need to know, or set a roadmap, so to speak, um, because that's going to guide and facilitate the training process. We also know that there's an opportunity cost here because it might not account for individual variance in any given day. There's not a linear relationship between load and response across multiple people, okay? Using auto-regulatory strategies just help us personalize the training dosage on an individual basis determined by what we're seeing and what they're presenting to us, okay? Different option. From a programming standpoint, maybe we don't program five, six, 10, 12 weeks in advance. Maybe we reduce our length of a program to a, a two to three week program. I don't know how my client's going to adapt to this. I know where I want to go and I've got my periodized plan, but I'm just going to write a three week program. And we're going to see how we go. And then at the end of this, we're going to reevaluate and we're going to go again. Okay. Because as we said, programming is a temporary theory. Okay. And this is idea between what's optimal versus what's logical. And we need to make sure that whatever strategy we're using, it's logical to logistical issues, meaning Maybe our client gets sick and they miss two training days. Maybe our mother has a sick child and she's stuck at home. Maybe someone's late from work. So if we're always on this really rigid plan, we can tear it up and throw it out the window because we've just missed two training days. Okay. However, if we, if we know what we're trying to accomplish and we have the ability just to kind of adjust within it on a short-term scale, we know it's always useful. Okay. So the idea is not a complete solution but it's gonna move us closer to the goal. And we talked about that earlier with regard to heuristic, right? It's practical and it's the best we can do for now, okay? These short-term programs will require weekly monitoring and adjustments as will any long-term program, but at least we know whatever we write, we're gonna be closer to, it's gonna be a little bit more accurate in terms of what our client needs uh, because we're not trying to guess six, eight weeks out. So if we just think about reducing the timeline of our programs, and writing them on a more frequent basis, automatically we're doing a better job by our clients. Yes, we need to know where we want to be in six weeks, nine weeks, and 12 weeks. But for right now, let us deal with the big rocks. Let's look at the next three weeks. If someone's coming three days a week, let's look at the next nine programs. What sort of dose am I trying to put on these guys in the next nine sessions? And then from there we go again. Okay. And down the bottom, it's just a great depiction of this, right? We've got the waterfall process and we've got the agile process. Waterfall is when we sit back and we want to make this beautiful 12-week program. And we hope everything is in alignment and it works out well. The agile process, again, just allows a little bit more fluidity. Okay? And a trainer or a coach that's a little bit more fluid and adaptable and agile within the programming will get better results from their clients. Okay? That's not to say we don't have an end goal and we're not working towards a long-term plan or off a long-term plan, but we're just taking smaller bite-sized chunks. And that's going to put us in a better position to give our clients what they need on that given day, okay? Moving forward, so these now are daily adjustments, or what we call in-session adjustments. How can we best do this, all right? So when we look at training load, the, the scientific barometer for gauging intensity of, the, of physical efforts that generate the highest stress to the CNS is rooted in the measurement of force and velocity, okay? So we need to be able to manage this interplay between load and load is basically how much weight or resistance we're using. Okay. And that's usually dictated by percentage of one rep max effort and effort is generally the speed at which we're moving and then exertion. Like how difficult is this set? And we're going to give you examples shortly in terms of how we can kind of quantify these things. Okay. So number one there, the load, this is the traditional percentage based model. And it's often expressed as a percentage of your one rep max. This is highly prevalent and common in industry. Why? Because it's easy to use. 
It's easy to measure. It's very linear based. There's a lot of science and research to support. Do A, expect B, so to speak. And, and then again, clients love it because it shows progression. All right. We were lifting 225. Now we're lifting 250. Next week it's 267 because we're working off these small planned increments. And that's all good and well. But again, it can be misleading and inaccurate in any given day because it doesn't account for your client's current level of fitness and fatigue. And this is something that we just need to be aware of. I'm not saying throw it in the bin. No, make your plans. But just be ready to kind of make adjustments as, as, as you move through it. The second one, effort, is the speed at which the load is moved. So for example, the same load moved at different speeds will have different responses within the body. And later on, we'll learn that there's a direct correlation between load and velocity. The higher the load, the slower the velocity. The lower the load, the higher the velocity. And it's fascinating when you actually see uh, for someone that's doing like a one rep max lift, that load, if, that, if their movement is anything less than 0.2 meters per second, we know they're going to miss the lift. Very seldomly does it go very seldomly does it go above 0.3 meters per second. Um, so we can now actually objectively use velocities to dictate strength qualities that we're developing and plan based on that. And the beauty of that is when we use velocity-based training as a tool on a day-to-day -day basis that allows for accommodations, the client it, re it, re it reduces expectations. I don't care what load is on the bar. The load on the bar is going to be dictated by bar speed. So if we have our device set up and it's showing that bar speed is moving, you know, between 0.4 and 0.6 meters per second, that's great. But now if my, if that's what I've programmed, that's good and well. But if my client is moving the bar and he's moving it at 0.272 meters per second, I now know we're training a different quality. He's moving it faster than he should to be in optimal range. So I'm now going to put more load on the bar. And then conversely, if he's moving a load slower than I would want, I know today he's not got it in him. I'm going to deload the bar, give him less weight, and get him back in that optimal velocity range. So it's just a great way of removing expectations, removing pressure. Hey, move this with as much effort and intent as you can, and let's see where you fall today. And then at least then we know the load we're exposing our guys to is directly in line with that day's current needs and their current physical capacities. And there's an awful lot of information online, guys, about this in terms of velocity-based training. There's some really good, cheap, accessible tools that we can now use that are just going to help us as coaches give our, our clients a better service, our athletes a better quality of service. But it just helps. It kind of holds us accountable to, all right, we're responsible for imparting stress. With this technology, we know that it's removing any potential guesswork. It's a lot more accurate and our clients are getting what they need. And for me, you know, that, that's a big win. And the last one then is exertion. And exertion is based on the difficulty of the set and the relative closeness to failure. So really, how many reps did our client do that was actually possible? Okay, so to throw numbers at you there, if someone's lifting at 75%, okay, and we ask them to do five reps, we know at 75%, generally we should be doing about nine reps. That's our max, max effort. If we have someone doing five by five at 75%, essentially we're having them leave four potential reps in the tank. This is hard exertion, okay? Now, if we have someone that's doing 66% of their one rep max, a much lower load, and we have them doing 10 reps of a potential 12, where now they've only got two potential reps left in the tank, that's near max exertion. So even though the relative load is lower, the exertion on their bodies is higher. So we can actually use exertion and reps in the tank or reps in reserve as a programming strategy. And again, it allows, so if we say, all right, today we're gonna to do three sets of 10 reps. We know the total volume we want to get because we know there's a direct outcome to uh, producing a certain amount of uh, training load through volume. If we said today we're gonna to do three by 10, but I want you to keep, uh, four reps in the tank, three to four reps in the tank, we know, okay, we're going to get the volume you want, but it's going to be hard exertion. Next week, all right, we're going to do four sets of eight today, but I want you keeping one, maybe two reps in the tank. They're going to self-govern, self-select their weights, and they're going to stop with one, maybe two reps in the tank. 
This now is what? Near max exertion. So if we start planning and programming off exertions, i.e. difficulty, it allows them to self-govern how much stress that they're actually imparting on themselves. And I found this to be a very useful tool with my clients. And again, I'll share some information with you soon that you can go online and actually read up on this yourself. And it really does open your eyes in terms of, all right, there's other ways out there that I can program within the OPT model where I'm still getting my guys the necessary training load. Um, but it's just getting them more involved in the process. Okay. And it just, it allows them to account for how they're feeling on any given day. Okay. Which for me really is a very powerful tool. Okay. So moving on the load based model, let's say we've done our one rep maxes and we know, okay, we want our guys lifting at 75%, 85%, you know, 60% for a certain amount of sets and reps. What if we just give them ranges instead of saying, okay, today I want you to give me four by six at said percentage. What if we said, okay, today I want you to give me four by three to five reps. So if they're feeling really good, and their body's primed and they're ready to go, they might squeeze out the extra rep. That's great. But if you've got a client that comes in and they're just drained and just physically it's not there, we're giving them the option. Instead of saying, hey, I want my four reps, we're letting them give you a rep less. It's still within that range. So some guys might take the extra rep if they're feeling it, but it gives other guys the ability and permission to say, you know what, it's not quite there. The energy's low. I'm really struggling to produce this force and this output. It lets them back off. And this just allows for individual daily variants. And as I said earlier, it removes expectation. So we can see there on the screen, common. All right, we're going to do five by five reps today at 75% or six by three at 85%. So option one, we'll keep the same total volume. We're going to keep the five by five, but instead of them lifting at 75%, we're going to have them lift between 70 and 80%. Okay, so let's say someone's one rep max in the squat was 135 pounds. 75% of that would be 101 pounds. Okay, so in theory, today we're gonna to do five sets of five reps at 101 pounds. But if we wanted to give them a range, a window that they could explore within, 70% of your 135 is gonna be 94 pounds. 80% is gonna be 108. So now instead of saying, hey, you're gonna give me five by five at 101 pounds, you're gonna say, you're gonna give me five by five within 94 to 108, 110 pounds. And again, now they take ownership of how they're feeling. They might get there. They might hit their first set at 94 and feel amazing. They might jump to 101, feel amazing. Last three working sets, they're up to 108. They're actually performing slightly above what we had planned. But guess what? They had the reserves. Okay, so by providing ranges, it just gives them the option to be a little bit more involved. Okay, option two then, let's say we, re we really wanted to keep a definitive load. We want these guys lifting 101 pounds. We want them at 75%. We want the five reps, maybe we'll just give them the range. So instead of doing five by five, today we're gonna to do five sets of a range of four to six reps at 100 pounds, 101 pounds. So you've got an athlete that comes in and he's not feeling it, he's done five by four versus the guy that's come in and done five by six. You can see the difference between their relative total volumes is a thousand pounds. That's a massive swing, okay? And we see that on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes guys are coming in and they're just not ready to get after it, but program says, we need you doing this. We're doing it. Push hard, dig deep. And as I said, what you, I mean, you've got to know your clients. Sometimes that's acceptable and it's feasible. Sometimes it's careless. And we just need to find that sweet balance. So for me, when I start giving my clients ownership and allow them to get involved with the process and I educate them, this is where I want you today. This is where we would like to be, but I'm giving you this range and here's why. Oftentimes they're going to respond positively and try and give you more, but sometimes guys that are being honest with themselves, they're going to keep a little bit more in the tank because as I said, tomorrow's another battle. All right. So we're going to move on from there. Effort. Okay. Velocity based training. We've talked about this briefly. Okay. So when we allow the velocity to determine the weight, we can ensure we are using the correct load for the client, reducing unnecessary fatigue. So we've just discussed that strength is variable. There's gonna be swings day in and day out depending on how well fueled someone is, how well recovered someone is, what stage of training they're at, how much cumulative fatigue they've built up. And some, some reports suggest swings as, as much as 18%, okay? That's massive. Um, so we'd be foolish to think that when we have this pre-scripted program that says athletes are gonna be here, 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 that they're going to be there. Some guys will, some guys are gonna just, progress 
on track. Some guys might go ahead of time, really good, strong adapters. Some guys might be slaggers, and we just got to account for that, okay? Knowing that certain strength qualities have certain specific speeds, again, we can use that to plan. So when we want to train within optimal training, training zones, we're going to develop specific physical qualities or traits, okay? Using this velocity-based training or this over-regulatory approach, it allows us to both manage volume and select appropriate loads, okay? And as I said, it removes the guesswork. It allows us to be a little bit more accurate as opposed to lucky, and it ensures that we're using the correct load for that session. So if you can see in these diagrams here, on the bottom right, you can see that at certain velocities, they directly correlate with certain percentages. So in most of our textbooks and most of our learnings, we've always learned off the traditional percentage-based model, as I said, because it's easy to use and there's a lot of research on it. But that now directly correlates to this velocity model, okay, which is becoming more prevalent, especially in the pro locker rooms as well as university locker rooms, because with these athletes, it's about managing freshness. We can't give them so much that they can't recover from because oftentimes we've got a very short window to prepare these guys. So we need to make sure that what we're giving them is the right amount, not too much, not too little. Okay. And then when they're in season, it's important that we're giving these guys the necessary exposures to meet certain qualities. And the best way that we found that we can govern that is through the use of this technology. And as I said, there's high end technology and there's low end technology that us in small private facilities can start to use and play with, and it can guide our training. Okay. Um, outside of that, I just love the fact that the weights we use are basically going to be performance based. They're dictated by speed. The athletes are talking to us indirectly. Okay. And, and that's a powerful thing. All right. So moving on from there, effort into exertion. Okay. We've talked about the exertion <clears throat> reps in reserve. Okay. And we talk about reps in the tank. And this basically quantifies the relationship between the load, the number of reps performed, and the difficulty experienced. So instead of programming off percentages or velocities, we can program with basic terms. Max effort, near max effort in terms of exertion rather, hard exertion, or maximum hard exertion. So we can see there, maximum exertion, there are zero reps left in the tank. That's a one rep max, one and done. Near maximum exertion, you can expect to have one to two reps in the tank or reps in reserve. Hard exertion is going to be three to four. And then medium hard exertion is going to be five to six reps in reserve. As I said earlier, this is a great system to use. Now, it is more advantageous and probably a little bit more accurate with experienced lifters. Because as they're moving, they can, they can in real time decipher, okay, I'm feeling good. I've probably got four reps left. So with inexperienced guys, this is pretty challenging, okay? But when you've been with clients for a while and they understand the process and they understand their body, uh, this is a really, really good method to use, okay? So we can see you have 85%, okay, at five reps, which would be max exertion versus three reps at near max exertion. So if we had someone doing 85% heavy load, okay, that's a heavy, heavy, heavy load. Um, at five reps, we are maximally exerting them. This is an incredibly difficult set. Now, if we have them do the same relative load at 85% and we only have them do three reps, okay, it's the same relative load, but the difficulty of that set has actually dropped because we're leaving more reps in reserve. So what does that mean for any given training day? We could probably get some more sets in where we could get more volume or we can keep the volume the same and our athletes are going to respond and uh, recover quicker because there's just not the same wear and tear on the body. So when we start thinking in terms of exertion, it's a really good metric to use. And again, I'm going to let you guys know where you can find some of this information online because it's really helped me from a simplicity standpoint, just quantify what I'm trying to do. Okay. Cause there's an awful lot of literature and information out there in terms of how best to plan, how best to periodize, how best to move the needle forward in, your, in the right direction for your guys. And we've got loads, we've got uh, velocity-based, uh, speed-based work, we've got dynamic effort, we've got endurance-based metrics, now we've got exertions. Where do we get this information from? How do we you know, funnel it down to useful bites that are going to help us in our program design? And for me, this has been really, really beneficial. Okay, So we would use exertion when we know how much volume we want to expose our guys to. 
We know how hard we want them working. So I know what volume range I want because I know what sort of outcome I'm looking for. I know I see this guy three days a week, so I don't want to go near max exertion every time. So I know how difficult I want to make the set, but I'm just unsure how to assign a load to that. That's where these graphs come in, okay? And when you look at them first, yes, they appear, they appear pretty difficult to decipher and understand. They are relatively simple when you take the time to just digest them. And I got these from complementarytraining.net, okay? Mladen Jovanovic is the guy that's bringing a lot of this information uh, to the market, so to speak, and he's done a great job of just simplifying it. Anybody interested in delving into this a little bit more, I would suggest you go to complementarytraining.net. Uh, and again, if we look at our examples here, we had someone doing six by four at 90% effort, that's max exertion, okay? Meaning they got no more reps in the tank. They give you the four, that is it. If I wanted someone working at hard exertion, I would have them say, okay, well, today we're gonna go hard exertion. Uh, reason being they might have a match 24, 48 hours out. So I still wanna expose them to some, some high intensity work, but I don't necessarily want to fry them because I know it could be 48, 72 hours recovery um, if we go too aggressive. Um, we need to ensure that we're giving them the appropriate load, okay? So what we do is we go six by four, we come across the graph, we look at hard exertion, we scroll down there, so we see we've got three or four reps in reserve, and then we just reverse engineer, we bring that across to the loads, and it's gonna give us the right percentage that we should be using. Okay, so now I know I can program six by four, making my guys work with hard exertion, which is three to four reps in reserve, I'm giving them a load of 78 to 84%. And then conversely, if I wanted to use velocity-based training, six by four hard exertion, I come down, I bring it across to the velocity and it's gonna give me the range. So if, got, if I've got the equipment of the apparatus, I'm now saying, all right, today we're gonna to be doing six sets of four reps. I want you to select a load that you can move within 0.4 to 0.49 meters per second. And it's self-governing. Your clients will naturally adjust for that. Um, so again, really, really, really powerful tool. So to wrap up the conventional training process, we know periodization is not an exact science. We know the decisions we make when we write them are made in relative uncertainty. That's not to discount them. We need them, they are roadmaps. It sets the framework for what we're gonna do, but we've just got to understand that we need to be adaptable and fluid within it. Just because the sheet says something doesn't mean we need to live and die by it. Order regulation. This is basically our ability to accommodate to our clients' needs. It allows, it provides them a little bit of ownership and have some say in the process. Because if they come in and for whatever reason they're mentally, they're not fully engaged, this will affect their behavior and their decision-making strategies when they're lifting anyway. So why not get ahead of that? Allostasis then, this is a positive response to stress. And this is our goal as coaches. We don't want to give so much stress and volume that it accumulates that we create this environment of distress or duress where our clients just can't recover in time for the next session. Okay, there is a time to do that uh, when we're trying to peak for something, when we've got a big planned recovery on the back end of it. But generally with our everyday clients, we're trying to maintain that idea of freshness. Okay, from programming adjustment standpoints, we need, it needs to be situation specific. Okay, we have a roadmap and we need to know where we're going. Yes, we're gonna work off a periodized plan, but to that same end, we're gonna, ad we're gonna adjust within it. And that's the beautiful thing about it. Okay, being prepared to listen to our clients, our vehicles, and knowing how best to manage it. Okay, it's no good our cars or our clients having overheated engines and flat tires or running low on gas, and we're, we're, we keep pushing them down the road. All right, sometimes we need to pull over, we need to do a quick systems check, and just make sure that what we're giving them is in line with their, uh, you know, their current needs and abilities on that given day. Okay, so with that said, guys, that concludes... Uh, this uh, presentation. Thank you so much for your time. I hope I've left you guys with some good nuggets that when you step away from here, you're just thinking in different light in terms of programming. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to sit down and create the perfect program for our clients. And that is necessary because as I said, conceptually, we need to know what we're doing. But with that said, we got to write that knowing that, okay, in two weeks time, it's really not going to be worth the paper it's rolled on. And we're going to need to be making adjustments on it. We're going to be scribbling. We're going to be removing sets, adding sets, changing volumes. And that's all part and parcel of it. And that's why personally, I love it. I love the idea of being able to adjust and communicate with my clients, being able to think on the fly and coach on demand, because that's where the, the art and the science meet. 
okay? The science is everything we know. The outcomes, how to elicit positive responses. The art for me is knowing when to apply what to who and how best to do it. Um, because that's just going to ensure that everything we're giving them is not only in their best interest, but it's going to get them to their goals more efficiently in a more timely manner, but most importantly, a lot safer. Um, and that's the ultimate key, right? It's we want to make sure that they're engaged in the process, they're enjoying the training, but more importantly, they're staying healthy, they're staying safe, and uh, yeah, they're just building along the way. Uh, so with that said, you'll get, you have my email there, andystrength at gmail.com if you've got any specific questions for me. Anybody that might want to follow some of my social media to see me posting uh, related videos as well as just kind of general training related videos, you'll get me there at andy underscore the hive. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to speaking with some of you again in person. And as I said, if you need me, uh, you know where to find me. Feel free to drop me an email. Thank you very much. All the best.